Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Law. I'm Michael Thackeray, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Stephen Kraft about his new book, American Justice in Taiwan, the 1957 Riots, and Cold War Foreign Policy. Welcome, Stephen Kraft. Stephen, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Well, I was uh, born and raised in Covington, Virginia, which is uh, in the western mountains of uh, Virginia. And um, I, in the 1980s, uh, 1985, I, I went to Taiwan for a year to uh, uh, initially to work with a, uh, an orphanage, and, uh, but spent most of my time uh, teaching English. And that's what brought me into contact with Taiwan. I was, uh, it was my, after my junior year in college, and I wanted to go abroad. And I had a uh, professor who had, uh, and still does, um, lived in Taiwan. And, and I thought, well, this is a great opportunity to, to get outside the United States and uh, to see another part of the world and so forth. And um, so I went there, spent my year, and that's what convinced me to go to grad school. And so I spent a couple of years at the Ohio University uh, pursuing a master's degree in history. And uh, my first semester there, uh, I decided to do some research on what at the time was called the uh, uh, the Dong Wai, which today is known in Taiwan as the Democratic Progressive Party. This was this is the party that has been the most uh, in terms of uh, being supportive of independence uh, of Taiwan. And I was interested in that topic uh, because I got to experience that firsthand while living in Taiwan that uh, that first year. Uh, and uh, so in the course of doing that uh, research uh, for this particular professor, I came across this story. And um, this was an intriguing story, and I'll talk more about that later. And uh, But I finished out my master's degree and um, – decided to pursue the PhD and went to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and uh, began to uh, do my doctoral work and ultimately went back to Taiwan to work on a dissertation that had nothing to do with uh, this particular topic that we're going to be discussing today. And uh, But I lived in Taiwan for several years uh, in the 1990s, um, married uh, a woman from Taiwan, uh, started raising a, one of my kids there and basically spent my time writing my dissertation, teaching English or uh, teaching for some of the local universities uh, before I came back to the United States in 1998. Uh, spent a year and a half uh, teaching at Valparaiso, uh, Indiana, Valparaiso University in Indiana. Was there for a year and a half and then ultimately uh, got this permanent job that I've been with since 19, January 2000 here at, uh, in Daytona Beach at Embarito Aeronautical University, uh, where I teach a range of courses, uh, you know, U.S.-Asian relations and, and so forth. That's, uh, it's wonderful to see how the professional and the personal sort of mix, and I think that's, that's the case for many of us. So your book starts with a very exciting opening. It starts with a shooting. Um, so if you could tell us that story, and then it leads into this very complex, and the way I thought about it was a, almost like a post-colonial procedural. So there's, there's, there was a lot of tension, and um, so it was, it was an exciting story. It starts with a shooting. So let's start with that. Yeah, this was one of the decisions I had to make as a writer: was do I open with a story, or at least with a a version of the shooting? And uh, uh, I think for readers, uh, for some, they find that very intriguing. Others, they, you know, they they have mixed feelings about it. But I thought. 
because this is a very complex story and it involves domestic politics and international politics and so forth. I, I was trying to find a technique to try to keep the reader in uh, thinking about the shooting uh, and, and not get into all the, the politics uh, involving the United States and and China, uh, or the Republic of China on Taiwan, or the People's Republic of China, all those events. Before I got into everything, I wanted to find a way to keep the reader thinking about what has happened, but at the same time, kind of shield them from understanding for fully until later on in the book exactly what has happened. But essentially, I open with um, a, an American by the name of Robert Reynolds, who is one of, uh, of a couple thousand uh, United States uh, military advisors uh, on Taiwan in the 1950s. And he and his wife have uh, come back home from uh, playing pinochle with uh, another advisor and his um, uh, wife. And um, she's taking a shower and he's in the house and suddenly she calls for him and says, uh, honey, I think someone is looking through the window. And, um, he tells her to stay put, and um, obviously she's naked, but she tells her to stay put in the bathroom, and he goes out into their bedroom and begins to load a, a nine-shot twenty-two caliber um, revolver and goes out the back door and then comes back around in front of the home, which is a duplex, and it's uh, these homes uh, still exist in Taiwan today. These were homes that were built especially for Americans. They had an American look. Uh, they had a kind of a yard and so forth that would be uh, compatible for Americans who have kids and things like that. And what he wanted to do, he was coming out of the, his neighbor's side of the house, and he looks toward his uh, from the house, and, and that, of course, is where the bathroom window is. And he says that there was a, um, a man and um, Reynolds, I don't know if his Chinese is very good or not, but he claimed, he said, uh, Deng Yidang, uh, in this sense, he says, you know, wait a minute, uh, wait to this individual. Uh, when suddenly this individual jumped down from the windowsill and approached him, and he thought that this individual had a uh, potentially a, a steel object in his left hand, and um, he cried again, dung dung, uh, wait a minute, you know, wait. And um, the man did not, and he shot. And the man disappeared, or he heard him fall. Uh, Reynolds claimed he went back to the house. He told his wife, you know, call the uh, uh, Chinese police. He himself said, I tried to call uh, for MPs. When, uh, he went back out, uh, and it, suddenly he says the man came at him again and uh, started uh, with a kind of a slouch. And uh, Reynolds almost point blank fired at this individual again. Um, the man is hit a second time and he goes away from the home and Reynolds doesn't see this individual again. He goes back in his home. He waits for um, the Chinese foreign affairs police to arrive. And that is the beginning of the book. And what a wonderful way to start, as I said, not only dramatically, but you start on this very specific moment, this almost split second moment. He makes a decision and that choice that he made to shoot the man, to take the time to load his gun, to shoot the man, um, led to a huge geopolitical uh, dilemma for both the United States, 
for the Taiwanese authorities, for the people. So what what's the background? What's going on? Why are the Americans there on the island in the first place? What's What's the tension that's underlying this whole situation? Well, the tension that's underlying the whole situation is, on the one hand, the United States is there because um, after the Korean War, the United States decided uh, under the Truman administration and continuing with the Eisenhower administration to ensure that uh, Taiwan did not fall to communism. There was a – by now – uh, the Truman administration and ultimately uh, Eisenhower is going to coin the phrase domino theory. But there was a fear, and you can see this in looking at Truman, you can see this in looking at Eisenhower, that Taiwan is one of several islands. Basically, you've got this arc of Japan, Okinawa, Taiwan, uh, the Philippines. And then, of course, by 1960, Ike is throwing in Laos. Um, Vietnam is not that on the that much on the table at that moment. Laos was, but anyway, basically Taiwan is seen as part of containment, and so the United States, even though we had misgivings with Chiang Kai-shek, there was a long relationship that we had with Chiang Kai-shek that went back to 1928, who was you know the leader of the Republic of China on on and obviously in 1949 though he's defeated and uh, is ultimately forced to take refuge on Taiwan. And although we had misgivings and although there was uh, the Democrats in particular uh, in the Trump administration felt like uh, before Korea, the Korean War, uh, which broke out in June of 1950, even though for they began to feel like, you know, look, uh, we, we invested a lot of money in this guy and he lost. And um, they were taking a wait and see approach uh, on whether or not to recognize the People's Republic of China or not, uh, though there were inside the United States military and interest in keeping Taiwan and preserving it. Uh, but basically, Truman had decided, you know, we're going to be hands off with Chiang Kai-shek, though um, we do – we do. there are Americans actually on the ground unofficially doing some things for the government. After Korea, though, after the Korean War, and particularly after China came into the conflict, the administration has decided you – know, began to send advisors, and it was a small group, and the intent was – this group would be small. But over time, uh, this group of advisors began to grow. And it reflected uh, our commitment to Taiwan. As I state in the book, um, there was a crisis in 1954-1955 over the offshore islands of Jinmen and Matsu, uh, which are very close to China. Uh, The Republic of China had uh, forces there. Uh, although Eisenhower did not want to uh, really commit himself to defending those islands, ultimately we do. Uh, but in the reaction to the Chinese shelling those islands, the Eisenhower administration made a decision to uh, first seek a resolution from Congress that essentially gave the president a blank check to protect Taiwan and the pescadores, which were just uh, very close to Taiwan, but mentioned nothing. Nothing was mentioned about the Jimin and Matsu that was deliberate. Uh, and then um, later on, there will be a Formosa resolution. Well, for, uh, uh, let me let me still go back. First, there's a mutual uh, agreement reached with Taiwan, uh, in which basically it's an alliance, almost like an alliance uh, that we will protect and defend Taiwan and the Pescadores. Later on, in 1955, there will be a Formosa resolution uh, that will uh, uh, 
basically give the president this, this blank check. And I may have the chronology wrong there, but basically what comes out of all that is that America is committed to defending Taiwan. And uh, so with that, you saw an increase in the number of advisors. You saw an increase in the amount of aid going to Taiwan. Uh, and ultimately, by 1957, the United States is stationing um, ground-to-ground um, intermediate-range ballistic missiles that have the capability of, of using a nuclear weapon. Uh, they are limited in range, but they could um, hit China. Um, they could, they could at least along the coast. Uh, we also began to build a massive runway in Taichung which could uh, support uh, bombers uh, like, like the B-52. Um, in fact, I've been told in the 1960s that we did maintain older uh, bombers there that did have nuclear weapons um, during the Vietnam War. But at any rate, uh, with all that commitment, uh, also you saw an increase in the number of advisors and their families. And so with that influx of Americans in Taiwan, what this did is, and this was not intended, but there was a growing concern that by these Americans and their dependents uh, going to Taiwan, that it gave the impression that Taiwan was occupied by the United States. And as you know from reading the book, that uh, there was at least one journalist who wanted to refer to Taiwan as the 49th state. This is obviously before Alaska and Hawaii become part of the United States. But at any rate, uh, it was an exaggeration, but um, it sh- there was a sense that you have a lot of Americans now living in Taiwan. And with these Americans on the ground, there was a lot of friction. And uh, this friction came in the form of uh, – Again, Americans uh, having a better lifestyle. They had the American dollar and the power of it. Uh, They brought their own automobiles from the United States and drove their own cars in a in a country in or in in an island in which uh, you know most individuals couldn't even afford an automobile. Uh, You have American schools. You have um, uh, Americans in some areas having their own um, housing, and they have. Chinese or Taiwanese who uh, work for them as chauffeurs, um, as maids, as cooks. And they have this lifestyle that is in uh, contrast. Uh, at Taiwan at this time, um, it, it, when I talk to individuals who grew up in Taiwan in the 1950s, they talk about how you know, people were so poor. And uh, and here you've got uh, what uh, one uh, British diplomat called the greenback rich Americans. They're on the ground and they have their uh, PXs in which they can go and their post exchange in which they can go and get their products. But the, another part of that was Americans apparently were uh, going to the post exchange and getting items and then they were selling that on the black market in Taiwan. Um, at a profit for themselves. And on the one hand, uh, there were uh, Chinese uh, government officials who took advantage of that because some of them had lived in the United States and they missed that type of uh, cuisine or whatever. But at the same time, it was causing problems. Uh, It was causing uh, impact on on currency in Taiwan or or it was basically illegal. And, And so that was causing friction. So so you've got this mix of Americans um, maybe recklessly driving their cars, uh, their accidents, 
And, uh, and, and on top of all this is that Americans, these advisors, and their dependents, uh, by 1957, almost all but 1,000 Americans had diplomatic immunity, which meant that if they commit a crime, they cannot be tried in an ROC court. And this adds an element uh, to the complexity. You know, they are there to protect Taiwan, to help their uh, counterparts. You know, they're working with them in all of these different areas. But at the same time, uh, Americans, uh, these advisors are allowed to um, have weapons in their home if they apply for a permit. And um, they have diplomatic immunity. So let me just jump in there. I mean that, and that becomes the heart of the matter. There is is the legal question of immunity and trials. But before that, I just want to sort of highlight how you you bring in multiple scales of tension. So as you mentioned, there's the there's the there's an alliance between the American government and and Chiang Kai Shek and the and the Republic of China, but it's an uneasy relationship. Um, where, as you said, some people were saying this with these bases and American soldiers and diplomats and the like, it looks like colonialism, but no one really wanted to go all the way and say that. That's on the geopolitical scale. The The shooting happens in 1957. This is a time, of course, when many countries in Asia now are newly independent countries. So there's that wave of independence of uh, post-colonial independence, anti-imperial movements through the Bandung Conference of 1955 is going on. So that's that's definitely in the background, I imagine, in people's mind. But then what I love is then you bring it down into that everyday life of, of the Americans on the island, the inequality between people. Um, so there, here I have to bring in a personal anecdote. I grew up in Saudi Arabia going to an American international school. I'm not an American, but the American kids would come who had access to the postal exchange the px would come to school with twinkies and twinkies were high value commodities at lunchtime for kids and we would trade and the american kids always got a better deal with their twinkies but uh so so there's the cultural tension and then there's the tension of course between the different chinese communities you have the mainland chinese uh, that came in. There's the the different groups that are living already living on the island so you have cultural tension economic tension and this is all further complicated by that issue of the diplomatic immunity. So in the, in the book, you call this, uh, you, you describe this as Americans having a law unto themselves. So not only cultural freedom almost um, and, and driving around and, and making a show of, of some wealth and, and in effect being active in a black market, but legally they also, a large number of people had immunity. And this was controversial both for the Chinese and for uh, American uh, politicians. So if you could talk a bit more about that. By now, the United States has begun to engage in or begin to have what was called status of forces agreements. Um, and this began with um, you had the Netherlands, for example, because we're now we're involved in NATO. And it became obvious uh, early on that uh, the United States could not have troops in uh, on foreign soil, but we needed to protect them, but also we needed to consider our ally. But these were very limited. And so what we said is, well, you know, um, if, a, if a soldier commits a crime or if something happens while on duty, then it's going to be the response of the United States to take care of this. Um, if this soldier uh, is involved in a crime off duty, uh, then we will 
give responsibility over or, or jurisdiction over to the uh, state in which we are engaged or where we have troops. And this began to expand, though. It, it started out with um, the clause was very unspecific. It did not grant very much. And then as we began to engage in negotiations with different countries, we, we came under pressure to cede a little more authority or jurisdiction to other countries. And Japan in particular became uh, a prime example of uh, Japan had a, a, a sofa that uh, in which it could uh, and, and spelled it out in certain ways that Japan could uh, request a jurisdiction. Now, Taiwan did not have a um, status of forces agreement, and that was because the United States um, did not like Chinese law. They demanded exclusive jurisdiction. In other words, regardless of whether an American soldier or advisor uh, committed a crime, off-duty or on-duty, the United States wanted jurisdiction over that individual. And uh, we did not like Chinese laws. Uh, we did not in particular like uh, – basically in Chinese law, you, you could be tried twice for murder. Uh, we didn't like that, uh, obviously coming from our culture of avoiding double jeopardy and all that. So as I explained in the book, um, this went back to – for a long time, this went back way in our history and in our relations with China, and it carried over into Taiwan. Um, you could say it, in some respects it was racist or, or whatever, but at any rate, we wanted exclusive jurisdiction. So in 1955 – when we began to negotiate with uh, Taiwan or the Republic of China for a SOFA, uh, the talks broke down very quickly because what the, the, the ROCs saw that Japan had this SOFA that was better than what NATO had, and Taiwan wanted something even better. They wanted the ultimately they wanted the agreement to state specifically that Taiwan would have jurisdiction over uh, American forces that committed murder and rape. And we said, no, we're not going to do that. And, and so even in, by the time of the shooting in 1957, the, the negotiations have reached an impasse because the United States does not want to give Taiwan any jurisdiction at all. And as you, you see in the book, this caused tension because some of our uh, State Department officials and even uh, some in, in, in our own military felt that we should at least give language that would show Taiwan had some authority. But remember, this is our ally. Uh, and, and, and why are we giving Japan, our former enemy, a better deal than our current ally, uh, Taiwan? Uh, and But that didn't happen. The State Department and the Department of Defense, um, at least, uh, well, Secretary of State John Foster Dulles, and, of course, the Pentagon, they were pretty much uh, dead set. And, and this is in part, and I think is an excuse, not totally, but it was a fact of the 1950s that there were politicians in this country who were opposed to status of forces agreements. Uh, they felt that Ameri the American flag should follow the American soldier wherever he went. And uh, they were opposed to allowing any other country to have jurisdiction over U.S. service personnel. And so so typically what the State Department or the Defense Department would say, well, we, you know, we just can't do it because 
the Senate is going to complain, and then eventually it became, well, we've got this particular congressman, and he's going to come after us if we, uh, so we're, we're just not going to do it. And so this is the situation by the time of the shooting in 1957. Um, Americans are still holding, at least uh, those who work for government, those who are in the military, and their dependents have diplomatic immunity. So that tension with uh, different jurisdictions and authority and different politicians having ideas about when Americans can be prosecuted overseas, it echoes a lot of issues that other countries um, have had to deal with in the expansion of the empire. So this is the issue of extraterritoriality and mixed courts. Um, so it not only complicated the relationship and the alliance between the American government and, uh, and the Republic of China, but it complicated the police procedural part, the how the investigation was actually conducted. So the geopolitics actually affected how evidence was gathered, who showed up, and, and personal relationships between the different authorities that showed up at the, at the scene of the, of the shooting. So if you could talk about how so the shooting happened, what happened next? So the Americans and the Chinese come at the investigation from totally different angles. Uh, not only do does the Americans tend to accept uh, Reynolds' versions of the uh, the shooting, but uh, from the very beginning, uh, the the Americans they were insisting that this two foot long uh, stick that was found was the weapon that uh, this Chinese individual allegedly had in his hand, the Ch Chinese investigators felt like, well, Reynolds described a three foot long object and it was kind of thick. And this is a two foot long piece of uh, tree limb or whatever. And of course, it ultimately it will be called a twig uh, by the Chinese press. So already it, the, Ch the Chinese did not even want to introduce the, uh, the, the stick or object into the investigation, but the Americans insisted. But at the same time, the Chinese investigators wanted to, um, if they were going to bring it in, they wanted to t test it for fingerprints, but the American investigator grabbed the stick in such a way that you couldn't even uh, check it for fingerprints. And, it, and the investigation just went downhill from there. Uh, the Americans did not want Reynolds to be interviewed at all by the Chinese um, unless they were there. And yet by the next day, uh, the Americans were angered to find out that the Chinese had already interviewed Reynolds. And, and, and both sides began to accuse each other of 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 either uh, not following procedure or um, at one point there was a aut autopsy done by uh, ROC authorities and the Americans wanted to see the report and supposedly the Chinese went out of their way uh, to not reveal that report until later on in the investigation. But from the very beginning, the Chinese felt like this was murder. This was a uh, not a not even uh, self-defense. The, the, they felt like the, this individual uh, had been shot. And it, it didn't help that when they were searching for the body or for searching for this individual and a body was found, Reynolds was the one who discovered the body. And, and so ultimately, that's going to lead the Chinese press to say, well, see, he knew where the body was. That's why he found it, because he knew that was there. So both sides um, basically began to According to one of the military policemen, there had been cooperation in the past, but on now there is not cooperation. So you have this tension, you have this conflict, uh, and, and it doesn't help that the first investigation by the United States uh, military 
came to the conclusion that charges should not be pressed against Reynolds because the Americans concluded that uh, all the evidence uh, supported his statements that I was attacked and I defended myself and I shot this individual. But the uh, the Chinese authorities were very upset by that, and they wanted this. They, and they were very upset when they found out that Reynolds was going to be allowed to come back to the United States. He was at the end of his tour anyway. He was coming back home anyway, and uh, but they wanted him to stay in Taiwan they, until there was a further investigation. So you have that tension going on uh, until a decision is made about whether or not to court martial or not. Right. So from Reynolds' perspective, this was a peeping tom. Um, and this was self-defense. He was protecting his family, his home, his wife, his property, and he shot in self-defense. Who was shot? Who was the individual that shot? Who was this person? There's a lot of question about who this individual is. Um, his name was Liu Ziren, and um, as I state in the book, his background was um, kept almost top secret. Uh, he worked for an organization in that area. Uh, that was known to be involved in clandestine work for the Republic of China. Um, it was said that he had the rank of a major. Uh, he was someone that he was in, uh, someone who had obviously come over from the mainland. Um, I have since learned, since writing the book, his wife, um, her father, was at, at one time uh, a communist sympathizer. Uh, who uh, was a friend of the, the great uh, Chinese, modern Chinese writer, Lu Xun, um, and, and ultimately will, will be leaning that way as well. But at the same time, her father was executed by the PRC in the early 1950s because it was believed that he was a spy for Taiwan. Uh, that was, that's something I've learned since writing the book. But at any rate, this was an individual that um, the Americans suspected was at least an officer, uh, possibly uh, more involved in uh, covert activity and, uh, than what was being admitted. The, the, the ROC government simply wanted to say, well, he was a typewritist uh, at the Institute. He didn't do anything. Uh, it, was it was almost equivalent to saying, well, he's like the janitor. Maybe, you know, maybe that's a little bit too strong. But, but there was a lot of information coming in to suggest that, no, this guy was more than – and and there was hints that – he may have been involved in uh, the black market. And of course, the Taiwan press, uh, and ultimately there were some sorted details that came out. He was a womanizer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, the Taiwan press began to lock in on, well, you know, he was involved in the black market and maybe this was a deliberate shooting by Reynolds uh, because the two got into an argument over the black market. Uh, Reynolds is leaving the country, whatever. Uh, there were suggestions that uh, these two guys had gotten in a heated argument over uh, the woman who was essentially a maid for the Reynolds home. That uh, <clears throat> he was in love, that Leo Zeran liked this woman. Reynolds uh, didn't like the fact that they maybe have a relationship. Maybe Reynolds had a relationship with her. And they got into argument and uh, Reynolds killed this guy. So the, the Taiwan press, without much evidence, began to speculate, well, this is why these two got into this heated exchange. But in terms of Lil Zeran himself, the ROC authorities did not supply very much information about his background. And that was one of the major complaints that the Americans had. Uh, I wonder at, at times if the Americans maybe knew of rumors 
about his background and they wanted to see it in, in black and white, but they never got it. And they would complain that they never got anything about him. Uh, so his background and, and even today, the, as I mentioned in the book, this is still a very sensitive topic to talk about even in Taiwan. Interesting. And, and you do a wonderful job sort of highlighting the ambiguity of the facts. Sort of you present, you know, this happened, this happened, but then the relationship between the potential relationship between the men was Reynolds involved in the black market. You raise all the questions, I think, and and rightfully sort of leave them open because in terms of what came out in terms of evidence still remains unclear. So Reynolds is then the it sounds like the compromise between the Americans and and the ROC government is to have a court martial and to have it in Taiwan. And the trial happens, the court martial uh, proceeds and it the Americans and the Chinese interpret the process, the legal process quite differently. So here you're highlighting a difference of legal cultures. So both different people are watching the same performance in terms of the court-martial and are extrapolating what's fair in very different terms. So if you could talk about how the the the, the court-martial was interpreted quite differently by, by different people. Well, you know, there will be a subsequent... There, Basically, under pressure, there will be another investigation by the Americans, and that investigation will conclude that uh, Reynolds, uh, in the heat of the moment, uh, fired a second shot that probably should have been fired, and so there should be a court-martial. And so the court-martial proceeding does occur in Taiwan, and they they choose a chapel, and they do invite the Chinese press, uh, though – before the trial, there, there were attempts to try to get the Chinese media to meet with the American military to discuss what a commercial is. Uh, but the very first meeting kind of blew up into a kind of, are you guys going to give any compensation to the wife and daughter of this man who's now dead? And in and, and, and the second one, they made a little more headway. But uh, uh, the, for the most part, as I demonstrated in the book, most Chinese newspapers did not go into any detail about what is a court-martial, what are the procedures involved. And so you have a situation in which uh, the United States military uh, selects a group of officers and non-commissioned officers uh, in the area. And ultimately, they started out with a jury of 12. But as you know, with the United States military, they don't have to have a jury of 12 to uh, to oversee this court martial. And ultimately, it, it is whittled down uh, either because um, one or two of the individuals said, I, I cannot, you know, I'm going to be biased uh, in this situation and uh, or for whatever reason. And ultimately, it's whittled down to about, uh, if I recall, about six. And that's going to anger the Chinese ultimately because they felt like um, this is a jury of all whites. Uh, these are people who are who know Reynolds or work very closely with him, and it's not fair. So anyway, you have this small jury, and you have this this presentation of you have witnesses who are brought in. Uh, you have a defense attorney um, who ultimately is is going to obviously go on the attack. He's going to do his job as defense attorney, which is not is unusual for Chinese society because uh, in Chinese society, uh, typically, you know, you're, as a defendant, you don't always speak before the, the court. Uh, basically, the prosecution presents its case and the defense presents its case, and then the judge makes a decision. But here you have a situation in which you have the back and forth between the lawyers, uh, and that is something that's different. And then, of course, you have... <clears throat> Basically, the defense lawyer 
accusing uh, Leo Zeran of being a, a sexual pervert, uh, someone who was going to break into the home regardless of how many weapons Reynolds had or did not have, and he was going to attack that woman. And so he portrays Leo Zeran as something more than just a peeping Tom. And uh, the, the prosecution, um, I think there were some lines of, of attack that they could have pursued. They did not. Uh, but the, for the most part, the prosecution is, is stuck with its own evidence and, and so forth. And when the, and the, the, uh, the jury goes out and the jury didn't deliberate more than two hours and they come back with a not guilty verdict. And of course, uh, there are Americans in the cla- in the courtroom or who begin to clap, cheer, uh, pat Reynolds on the back. And the Chinese are very upset by that. Uh, they are, feel like, you know, this is not the place. This is not a football game. This is not uh, us versus them. You know, we're, we're supposed to be here about justice and and we don't, we're not seeing it. We're not seeing justice. And of course, uh, a lot of the government officials and a lot of people in Taiwan felt like, you know, the, the prosecutor was biased, that uh, he was either incompetent, ineffective or maybe biased, um, you know, did not really want to see this man prosecuted. So clearly the Chinese are not happy with the, the Chinese, Taiwanese are not happy with the verdict. Right. So it's not just the geopolitical tension that's informing how the situation is interpreted, but just a different notion of what's a fair trial look like is also affecting what's going on, combined with the 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 I mean I can imagine with the clapping afterwards uh, it uh, it could be offensive if if that's if you're you're from Taiwan so court martial ends and this is now where the story takes a bigger turn it's now clearly no longer about Reynolds it's there's so talk about what happens after the court martial one of the I think one of the biggest mistakes the United States made, and, and this went straight to the top, well, at least with our military advisors, they did not want to pay reparations to the widow. And they could have. This has been done in the past. Uh, but <clears throat> the the top American commander of the ground argued that, well, I'm not going to give this woman money. He After he got the verdict, after he heard about the not guilty verdict, you know, someone said, well, you know, we need to give her compensation. And he said, no it's going to make Reynolds look guilty. Uh, and what I should have said in the book, and I, and I do criticize, but what I should have said is the guy already looks guilty in Chinese minds. And, and so giving her money is not going to make him look even more guilty. He has already, he has already been deemed guilty because Chinese cannot understand how a man can kill another man and be found not guilty. Now, as I stated in the book, Chinese were not expecting this man, Reynolds, to be executed. They were not expecting the death penalty, but they felt like there should have been some type of sentence or some something that said, you killed an individual, you are guilty for taking another life, and uh, there should have been some type of reprimand, and there was nothing. And this went against you know Chinese society. This went against their notion of, of justice and so forth. Um, again, they were not expecting the death penalty, but they just could not believe how could this man go free? So they have already in their minds, this guy is guilty and he should be punished, but the Americans don't even want to compensate the widow. And so the anger in China among the Chinese is quick. Uh, of course, of course, the Americans are going to say that this was, uh, some of them are going to say, well, this was organized by the ROC government, but I don't think so. 
I think that you could, there's enough evidence from the Chinese side to show that the uh, people across the island, whether they were Chinese or Taiwanese, and, and maybe for your listeners, uh, I, I do have to draw this distinction because you have a government uh, that is that brought about 2 million refugees from mainland China to Taiwan in 1949-1950, and, and they're over a population of you know 8 million Taiwanese who, and not ex- excluding the Aborigines who, uh, of the, and the mountain people, but these are these Taiwanese are people who are originally from from China, but there is a there there is a kind of a divide or split there. But Taiwanese can, and you mentioned earlier about the the wave of nationalism and so forth after World War II. Um, Taiwanese and Chinese, I think, were agreed. This guy should have been punished, and they can't understand why. And in the universities. Um, and in, in, in society in general, people are talking about the case and, they, and they're angry uh, and, and they're very emotional about it. There were no consequences, basically, from their perspective. Exactly. And what happens the next day is the widow and her daughter sits in front of the American embassy and begins her protest. And uh, now, again, the Americans are going to accuse her of being deliberately put there by the government. And of course it doesn't help that maybe her family did have some intelligence uh, background that I, that I did not know at the time that I know now, but I still think that it was a one woman protest against the American government. She wanted compensation. She wanted something that said, this guy is guilty. And um, she sits up front and, and initially there's no big deal, but eventually a crowd begins to form and it begins to grow and grow and grow and grow. And the anger begins to boil. And, uh, and then you've got Chinese students who get involved. They're demonstrating, they're protesting, they're carrying their signs and, and the anger begins to boil and it begins to grow until eventually uh, waves of, 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 of Chinese and Taiwanese both begin to go into the embassy and attack it. Um, there was, as far as I know, there was no U.S. Marine contingent to guard the place. Uh, most Americans had left the building, but there were still embassy personnel on the ground. No one thought at the time that this would blow up, but, but by the afternoon, it blew up big. And there was a handful of Americans and, and Chinese uh, workers stuck in an uh, air raid shelter for several hours until eventually they were driven out and beaten all, nearly all of them. And, uh, um, and of course it's going to spread. The, the entire embassy is going to be uh, practically destroyed. Uh, uh, the local United States information service building is going to be practically destroyed. Just to highlight, just to the, and I love here you captured and you really captured the feeling of that moment. So you sort of found uh, evidence of what people were cheering and chanting and spraying. So here, I just want to, just to get a sense, people are cheering, and then you, you note that one cries out, long live the Republic of China, and then another writes in Chinese and English on the embassy wall, protect U.S. military's contempt for human rights. So people are, 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 are expressing their anger, and they're expressing it directly at the Americans here in a way that doesn't – it shows that – even though they're formally allies, it, that moment, uh, which you call Black Friday, is is where it all really bubbles up onto the streets. Yes. And of course, uh, you know, there's a big debate about, you know, was this anti-American or not? And I don't know, as I say in the book, uh, some were convinced that it was an anti-American riot. 
Uh, others were convinced it was not because, you know, it was, but I, what I would say is it was not anti-American. It's more of anti-American justice or the way that justice is working. Uh, you know, these were not people who were saying, you know, yeah, there were some elements that talked about, you know, let's go after these GIs, let's get rid of them. But for the most part, I don't think people in Taiwan wanted to see the Americans go, but they, they, they were so angry at what has happened and, and their, their, the emotion and the feeling for the woman and the feeling that a Chinese has been killed by an American and he's getting away with it. And it didn't help. And what really brought this all to a boil was the announcement that Reynolds and his wife and daughter had left the island. And that's, that sealed the deal. That, that told them, well, then there's not going to be another trial. And they're furious. And, um, and so at any rate, uh, all this damage is done. And it, then it got worse. It, it went beyond just that. And by the end of the evening, they are now even attacking their own police station. The Chinese and the Taiwanese, these rioters are now going against their own police station in part because they've heard that there are Americans inside. But it grows to the point that now the uh, ROC authorities have to begin to open fire on their own people. And one guy ultimately dies. One rioter is killed. So, it went beyond uh, just, you know, uh, being about uh, Reynolds and so forth. It, it blew up. And, um, and and the devastation is is at the same time, though, you can see that Chinese or Taiwanese both realize, you know what, we went too far. Um, you know, there's a there's a debate, obviously, as I bring out in the book, there was a sense that, you know what, we needed to speak our minds. We needed to tell the Americans how we feel. We shouldn't apologize for anything. On the other hand, as you can see from the book, there, were, there was a sense of, you know what, this is disaster. We, we got out of control. Uh, how did we get this far? Um, did we cross the line? And there was a sense among some people that they did cross the line. But the emotion and the anger was so deep that uh, – um, and, and, of course, some of the, the, those involved said, look, I'm not anti-American. I was just upset that is what happened. Um, and so now you have, after the riot, this – uh, the Americans obviously are very upset. They make accusations. But the question is, you know, was the government involved or not? And there was tangential evidence that suggested, well, this was a conspiracy. This was something done by the government. Uh, and um, and obviously, as I explain, at the end of the day, the feeling is, well, maybe there was a conspiracy, though you could also suggest that that maybe we didn't want to find the real answers because this is our ally. And we and if we if we dig around too much and if we expose too much, it's going to make the alliance look bad. Um, but at any rate, the Americans initially are very upset. They're very bitter. Uh, there's this whole notion that all oh, it's all because these people are because we give them aid. Uh, we're giving them aid and they're angry with us. But as I try and I may I wish I'd done this more in the book, but I, there were a lot of photographs taken around the embassy that, yeah, there was a, one or two people carrying a protest sign about U.S. aid. The bulk of the signs all went to diplomatic immunity. The, the, the placards or whatever all talked about diplomatic immunity or justice. It was not about American aid. But that's how Americans looked at it. But as I went on further, I tried to say, well, you know, let's get to the heart of the matter. These people rejected our sense of justice. They, they did not buy into it. Yeah, I think you did a great job capturing that it wasn't anti-American, as you said. It was I, I read it as an it was a nationalist response that yes, you're our ally, but that doesn't mean that we have an unequal relationship. So it's sort of a 
trying to reassert their sense of pride and, and dignity and, and fairness. And, and the de- it's, you weave the details of the day, but into, and you give that broader meaning in a way that I think captures what was at stake from, from the Taiwanese um, perspective. So how does it all end? So how does that day end? How, what happens? How does the riot die down? And, and what's the aftermath of all of this? Well, the aftermath, obviously, is a shock for the United States. And, of course, uh, our government is trying to figure out what's going on. And it doesn't help that roughly around the same time that Reynolds had shot this individual, you had a shooting in Japan by a guy named William Gerard, in which he uh, – it was not deliberate, but he killed a woman. Uh, and the Japanese were seeking um, jurisdiction in that case. And that became a major uproar in this country. And for the moment, Eisenhower was not going to let Gerard be tried by the Japanese. But now here comes this riot. And across Asia, you have people in South Korea and Japan and Thailand and would have in South Vietnam if they could and the Philippines and other parts of Asia who are complaining about the American presence and how Americans you know, shoot our people and get away with it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the clamor begins to grow to the extent that I makes the decision, all right, I have to protect our status of forces agreements around the world. If if we lose SOFA, we lose our overseas bases, we cannot ever convince a government to accept our troops on foreign soil. Because of the Taiwan riot, he makes the controversial decision to allow Gerard to be tried in a Japanese court. And of course, there's going to be a big a blow up in the United States again. Uh, Ike is going to be condemned by people across the country, including people that would have come from his base for doing that. But as I showed in the book, he felt like that, you know, you have to look at the bigger picture. Uh, you, you know, we are trying to maintain containment in a way that we defend our allies. And that means having bases and troops on the ground. And, and we could never convince a foreign power to do that if we did not have these sofas. And so um, what I say is that Ike makes that decision and ultimately Drar will be tried and he will be found guilty. He will be sentenced to three years and immediately put on a plane and sit back to the United States with his Japanese wife. And he never serves prison time in Japan other than for the confinement that he faced um, in those few months after the shooting. Um as for Taiwan, nothing really changes. Uh, the Americans continue to drive recklessly as they have been. Um, and there are some many riots that occurred uh, immediately after the, the Black Friday. And then, of course, in July, there will be another sense that there's still some tension. Uh, both sides try to kiss and make up as quickly as they can. Uh, the, you know, they build a new embassy or at least repair it and all that. Uh, but when it came to negotiations for a new sofa, nothing happened. The Americans are still committed to exclusive jurisdiction, and uh, and it doesn't help that when they were close to getting an agreement in 1959, uh, a top lawmaker for Taiwan got run down by an American soldier. I don't think it was deliberate. It was just an accident. And so basically, as I say, it's status quo. The Americans are still there. The Americans are still doing what they do. There is no sofa. Americans still have diplomatic immunity. And so in the end, the riot really doesn't accomplish a whole lot. As I say, at the end of the day, maybe if anything, it just allowed people to release the tension because there is a sense that I try to portray this in the book, that there had been incidents prior to this riot 
that had gone uninvestigated. Now, I have no evidence that this occurred. It's just all tangential. It's just anecdotal. Uh, I have not never had an opportunity to find out, you know, were there accusations made prior to 1957 of Americans committing crimes that they just got away with it. But uh, it doesn't change. The riot doesn't seem to change anything on the ground. And in fact, it's not going to be until 1965 that the United States finally does uh, sign a SOFA with Taiwan. And it was, it was a very good one. And, um, and it lasted until 1980 when we pulled our forces out for good. Uh, after we recognized the People's Republic of China, uh, we ended the alliance in 1980. And so uh, we do have a SOFA that lasted for about 15 years. Mm-hmm. Well, Stephen, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to to share your thoughts about your book. So just to, to round things out, so this story really resonates today. So uh, what, what, should, what would readers, what would they take away about thinking about events today and, and combined with where is your research going today? What I try to do in the book, and this was a story that for a long time I thought, you know, there is no story here. It, it was just a guy who did a shooting and, um, you know, and what's the big deal? But as I began to dig deeper and dig deeper, I could see the problem of diplomatic immunity. And, uh, and of course, um, as you know, there has been an incident in Japan in the late 1990s in which a Japan, uh, Okinawan girl was raped. And then in 2002, you had a situation in which two South Korean girls were killed by an American uh, military vehicle. Um, and there was an uproar in South Korea. And there was a lot of criticism uh, in those times by certain Americans that that we should eliminate status of forces agreement because they are the equivalent extraterritoriality. And what I try to show in this book is, you know what, diplomatic immunity is worse, uh, at least the way that we were doing it. And so um, these type of events, these incidents, they do leave a bad taste in uh, the mouths of, of those who we're working with. Uh, and this is, this is going to, as long as we're trying to put troops on the ground somewhere, uh, I'm not talking about in large numbers. I'm not, you know, obviously, if we're doing small covert operations, I would think those guys are going to have diplomatic immunity. But if we're talking about, you know, keeping bases around the world, there's always that potential for tension between Americans and uh, their allies. Uh, it's not this, they're not necessarily insurmountable, but it's still an issue. There was, uh, if I recall, uh, last late last year, there was an incident again in Okinawa in which American service personnel and their dependents went out in Okinawa with signs that saying, we apologize, we're sorry. Uh, and, and so I think that we understand that we have to find a way to get along with our allies if we're going to maintain this military presence. Um, if we're not going to end it, then we need it, it's still going to be an issue. And as I mentioned in the book, we are using UAVs around the world. Uh, not only has it been the problem of us using a UAV to kill an American citizen without due process, but just the fact that there are Americans flying UAVs who may be in Los, who may be in Nevada, but they're flying a UAV and, and, and they may carry out a strike that will kill civilians. Who, so if you could just explain to listeners what a UAV is. An unmanned uh, uh, aerial, aerial vehicle, an unmanned aerial vehicle, uh, mostly called, more commonly called, called a drone, which I think is wrong because these are piloted. A drone is not piloted, but the UAV is piloted. But the, the pilots could be in one location, but they're flying the UAV over another in sovereign airspace for another country and carrying out an attack. And of course, there's been a lot of resentment. It's been said 
uh, that the, the Boston bombers from a couple of years ago, one of the reasons why they carried out their attacks was because they were angry at our use of UAVs. So um, we, I think we still have to be sensitive to these type of issues. Uh, it's been said that one of the reasons why we pulled out of Iraq the way we did was because we couldn't get the sofa that we wanted. Um, and so, and yet, uh, we're still in Afghanistan and we, and so as long as we have this type of commitments and if we get involved, uh, th this is going to remain an issue for us. It's not going to go away. There are still going to be incidents. You, you may recall in Afghanistan, there was an individual who went off base, not once, but twice with a weapon and killed Afghan families and, um, ultimately would be court martial for it. So you, you don't want those incidents to happen, but you have to be prepared for the possibility that they could happen. And you, you have to try to find a way to work with the locals and um, you want to protect your people. Um, you don't want them to be unjustly uh, accused and punished. But at the same time, you have to be sensitive to the, the people that you're trying. You, you are claiming to be your ally, your friend. You have to be sensitive to uh, their emotions and their beliefs and so forth. Well, on that note of negotiation and friendship, I think that's a good place. Uh, thank you very much, Stephen. So uh, Stephen Kraft's book, American Justice in Taiwan. 